that was never, that wasn't the goal. I, I, I remember, I remember driving home my last day at work and thinking to myself, if I can, if this transition enables me to have the freedom to work for myself and to focus on work that I love and to do the kinds of projects and work with the kind of people that I really, truly enjoy, I would be happy having half the income I had in my corporate job. Money was not the, the sole driver. It was almost a search for meaning. ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual team and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional performers in athletics, music, entertainment, and business, so we can all learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. In this episode of 12 Geniuses, our guest is Ryan Estes. In January 2009, at the height of the Great Recession, Ryan chose to say goodbye to corporate America to start a professional speaking and consulting business. Fighting back the fear of failure and leaving behind a comfortable executive position at a Fortune 500 company, Ryan overcame the odds and built a business over the last decade that finds him to be one of the most in-demand keynote speakers in America. In the first part of this interview, we are going to hear about Ryan's entrepreneurial journey. In the second part, he will discuss some of the ways his clients are fighting off disruption in an economy being changed by new technologies, business models, and shifting demographics. Ryan, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks, Don. It's good to be here. So in January of 2009, your company was laying off 30% of its workforce, and you said, include me in that. I did. Yeah, that was um, our, our fourth round of layoffs in about 12 months, by far our largest. And I just felt like it was time for me to make my move. Um, you know, I, I, I disagreed with the decisions that were being made in the business. They were beyond my control. We were part of a publicly traded company. It was a pretty specific formula, managing headcount to revenue. And obviously our revenues were stressed given the circumstances. It was the great recession. And, you know, I, I didn't want to spend the sweet spot of my career running a mediocre business sideways. And so I, um, I took a deep breath and it was an abrupt departure. I mean, literally within 24 hours of receiving that phone call and 30% that decision, I was out. What was your state of mind? Fear, excitement, liberation? What was going through your head at the time? Yeah, it was more fear than excitement. Uh, you, you know, it was a difficult time. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it was a difficult time for any business, um, you know, let alone to think about beginning one's entrepreneurial journey. You know, I'd, I'd worked inside that company for over 15 years. So, you know, I, that was, there was a lot of security and stability. I was good at it. I knew how to do it. I had a lot of support around me. You know, the idea of packing up and going home and opening up my laptop at the kitchen table the next day. No, I think the, the harsh reality set in that, you know, we're in the middle of a recession. This is going to be tough. My back was against the wall and it was sink or swim. So, you know, it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a, a lot of, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety, but I think for periods of time, some of those things can actually propel you forward. You know, I, I had made my decision. I walked and then the bet was on me and what's going to happen next. And so, you know, that that's what it was like. 
But there, look, there were a couple of sleepless nights and there were moments of time where I, I had the phone in my hand thinking about calling my boss to beg for a job I didn't even want back. But that was the, the best phone call I, I didn't make. So The good news is everybody was supportive. Friends, family, they said, this is a great time to quit your business. Is that basically how it went? <laughs> no, no, that's not how it went. And people told me I was insane, that it was destroying my career. I think, you know, my people thought I was having some kind of a midlife crisis and, and said it was the absolute worst time to, to start a business. It was inconceivable. I wasn't going to make it. You know, the people starting consulting, training, speaking, doing those kinds of things. People were leaving those industries looking for jobs, for stability, because yeah, the marketplace was stressed. And a lot of what I was bringing from a services and a consulting, a, a speaking perspective, that's discretionary spend. Companies don't have to pay for those things. And certainly um, it, it wasn't it wasn't the best time. But, you know, looking back on it all, it actually proved to be a pretty good decision. You're approaching 10 years. Right. And in 2009, when you were starting the business, what did you think it could become? I never thought it be, could, could become what it is today. I think um, I think it's exceeded even my grandest expectations. But I, I you know, I, I thought that if I put everything I had into it and continued to develop my skills and evolve, that I, I could have a solid and successful management consulting business that was supported by speaking as one revenue stream and the primary marketing outreach for that business. That, that was my initial inception. And when did you realize it was going to be a success? How long did you, how long did it take? Was it several years? Several, several years. It, it was. I would, I would say, and look, I made some critical missteps out of the gate. You know, I, I formed partnerships. I took on project work just to cash flow the business that I really wasn't interested in that consumed a lot of the lion's share of, of my time to deliver on it and minimize my ability to go out and do other things and build other things that I was, I was interested in. But I, I think by the third or fourth year in, the first couple of years, I was just trying to get to the end of the year so I could play another year, right? That was the mindset. You do enough, get enough traction where you can conceivably say, yeah, it makes sense to keep going. And so, but I, I think, you know, year three, year four, when I got focused and started to see momentum, that's when I thought, okay, th this is it. And at what point would you have circled the wagons and, and gone a different route? Did you have a point where you said, if... I'm not here, then I'm going to go back to corporate America and, and get, find a similar job. Yeah, I did. Well, so I did have a point and I had a very clear plan with my financial advisor that if I ever picked up the phone, you know, I had, uh, I had set aside a chunk of money to cash flow the business and, and to live. And beyond that, if I was, if I was going to call and, and need cash out of investments and savings, if I was going to start to deconstruct that, and my financial advisor's only appropriate response was it's time to get your resume together. So we had a, we had a very, very clear plan. Additionally, during those first couple of years of uncertainty, I was also interviewing for jobs. I get calls by headhunters, friends. That was also creating a distraction. So I had I had too much emotional energy and investment in this idea of a plan B. And it truly was once I got committed and focused and clear, that energy created momentum that I ultimately think was the catalyst to drive me forward, the business forward, and help it become what it is today. You said that three or four years in, you knew this was going to be a success. At what point were you able to match your income from the job that you had quit. The fourth year out, I exceeded my income. 
So that then I knew. I said, oh, wow, this, this proved to be a good decision. But I want to tell you, like, that was never, that wasn't the goal. I, I, I remember, I remember driving home my last day at work and thinking to myself, if I can, if this transition enables me to have the freedom to work for myself and to focus on work that I love and to do the kinds of projects and work with the kind of people that I really, truly enjoy, I would be happy having half the income I had in my corporate job. Money was not the, the sole driver. It was almost a search for meaning. And so the fact that, you know, I, I had eclipsed, you know, my, my, my best year ever in corporate America by year four, that was, um, that was icing on the cake. Well, that's great. And I really like the, the way that you framed that because money was not the way that you were measuring success. So one of the questions that I love to ask people is, how do you define success? Yeah, for me, it's about impact, you know, um, and it's hard to measure, right? You know, how do you, how do you measure impact? But, but ultimately, I, I certainly, look, I have a sales background and I'm running a business. So we certainly have metrics and things that we're tracking on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual basis to make sure that the, the business is healthy and that we can continue to grow and we're servicing clients and we're adding solutions to it. You know, I want to, I want to build a healthy business that supports not only me, but now we've got other people that I, I feel some semblance of responsibility for that are part of it. And we have partners and, and, and those kinds of things. But, but ultimately, if I get to wake up every day and look forward to that day and work with and for people that I truly love, that's, that's a good life. And so for me, a big part of this is freedom. It's life on my terms. It's work and life on my terms. So I, I always say, you know, I retired from work when I was 39 years old and I went out on a journey to chase my dream. And, you know, sometimes I pinch myself because I'm, I'm living that dream. And look, that's not to diminish the challenges and that it's not always perfect. It's, it's still work, but it's worthwhile to me and there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. And that decision, that decision in January of 2009, that inflection point, as difficult a decision as it was, it has proved to be the single greatest professional decision of my life. Congratulations. Thank you. It wasn't without some obstacles. No. What was the biggest obstacle or the handful of, of big obstacles that you had to overcome? Yeah, I, I, think, I think one of the biggest was just my own, my own lack of certainty or self-confidence in doing something I had never done for the first time. And I think that's certainly natural. If you're doing, you're doing something for the very first time that you've never embarked on, and for me, it was entrepreneurship. I'd never started a company. You know, I I'd never worked on my own. Since graduating from college, I worked for a company and drove to the office. And so overcoming some of the self-doubt and acquiring the confidence to know that whatever the obstacle I was going to encounter, I have the skill set and the resolve to solve those problems when I'm in it. I think that's critical for any long-term successful entrepreneurial endeavor. I think it's one of the hallmarks of an effective entrepreneur or solopreneur is to, to play some bets, to take some chances, to know there's gonna be adversity, anticipate that, but have the confidence and the resolve to know you can handle it when it shows up. And, and getting there was critical. And I think, I think naturally too, for a long time in this, for, for the first five, six years, 
you know, there was a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, right? I had something to prove. And so there was a lot of comparison and there, there was a, a lot of thinking about so-and-so's doing this and I need to do that. And, and you know, I, I wanted to prove to everybody that I could make it. I just don't think about those things anymore. I'm not as motivated by what other, what other people are doing and what they think of me or my business. The, the thing I think about now is what do I have to give to my clients, to the people that are in the audience when I'm speaking, to the team that I'm working with. So it really has been this journey for me of having something to prove to, to having something to give. And when you have something to give, your life's a lot more rich and full too. Any regrets? Yeah, I have one that I didn't do it 10 years sooner. I, was I wonder if that was, was going to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had a, a very, a very good friend who's been an advisor to me on this journey um, and a very successful entrepreneur. And I, at, when I quit my job, I called him and I said, I don't know, I'm scared. You know, I hope I made the right decision. And he said, you're going to have one big regret around this choice. And I said, what? And he said that you didn't do it 10 years sooner. And he said, and when you know that's the case, on the day you believe that in your heart, I want you to call me and tell me today's the day. And five years in, I made the call and I said, I, I made a huge mistake. He said, what I should have done. He said, I told you, but it's a good feeling. You know, that's, and I, that's regret I can live with. I mean, would you have, had you started 10 years earlier when you were you know, 30 years old, yeah. would you have been as successful as you are now? That's a, that's a great question. And I, I would say probably not. There were some important business lessons, I think, that I was provided through my 30s. You know, we went through an acquisition. We were part of a Fortune 500 company. I got exposure to different kinds of clients, working internationally, things that, that just, you know, and, and expanding my skill set and range, particularly as a leader and, and getting more responsibility, becoming our chief strategy officer. And I, and I think that skill and competency, perspective and experience set it has been instrumental in, in my ability to evolve as an entrepreneur. So I, I, I think the timing was right. When you're speaking to these big audiences, you must have people come up to you afterwards and say, <clears throat> I want to do what you do. I want to start my own business. I want to create a following. I want to go and keynote and be on the big stage. Or I just want to start a business in general. You've been a successful entrepreneur. Is that true? Do you have a lot of people yeah, who I, come up to you? I think it's probably the question I get asked the most. Not in the room, right? But it's after in the hallway or, you know, an email and in a LinkedIn note. There's probably not a week that goes by that someone doesn't reach out asking me for perspective and, you know, guidance on my journey. And so it's something that I've written about and, and talked about a lot because I get asked about it a lot. And what do you tell people? Yeah, you know, there, there's a few things. I mean, um, so so number one, for anybody that really wants to start a business or go out on their own, you know, you have to have the the uncomfortable conversation about cash. You know, every 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 business, every lifestyle, and everybody is different in a different situation. So just just you know, getting people really clear um, and, and giving them some perspective. And, and then I talk about the confidence too, you know, kind of the resolve that it takes, um, having, having the patience, having the right mindset, the discipline, the fortitude. I think what a lot of people battle, I mean, what they're, a lot of times I think what people ask, are asking me for is almost permission. You know, they, they almost want to, they're asking me, am I, is it going to be okay if I, I want to do this, but I'm afraid. You, you somehow slayed that demon, you conquered it. And what I always tell people is that that's going to accompany you on this journey. 
But you have to look inside yourself and say, can you handle it? Can I live my life in a way while that's an accompaniment? Can I navigate the uncertainty? Everybody's risk tolerance is different. And I would say I'm not a big risk taker. You know, I'm a fairly risk averse guy. But I think what can give people confidence, I would say conduct little experiments. So if, 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 you, wanna, if you wanna do consulting work, take on a project in your spare time. And, you know, start a side hustle. For me, fortunately, I was speaking as part of my corporate job. I created an opportunity inside the context of my corporate environment to test my skill and competency in that arena so I could collect the feedback and help myself determine, is this something that would be viable for me to pursue? And the better I got, the more feedback I got. I even had a coach while, you know, I had a, I had a business coach while I was in corporate America helping me, you know, discern, hey, is this viable? And I, so I studied it. I probably put two years of research work into studying consulting, training, speaking, content creation, writing, you know, before I actually made the move. So I think, you know, that helped give me some measure of confidence. And then, you know, then you just have to do it. So you talked about three things. You talked about cash. cash. How much money do you need? Right. And what sort of runway do you have? All, all of those conversations. Yeah. How much do you have? How much are you going to need? And and a big one for you know a big one for me is what can I cut? And the answer is everything. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the, and you did right. The you, day you, you cut everything. The day on it, I played golf two or three times a week every summer until the day I started a business. And I have not played a round of golf in nine and a half years. <laughs> now some of that is symbolic to honor the sacrifice that's required to be an entrepreneur. Would I like to go play a round of golf tomorrow? Yes, but it's gonna take five and a half hours, cost me 120 bucks by the time I get a hot dog and a couple beers after the turn and lo lose a few bets to my friends. And it, it'd be a heck of a way to spend a nice Saturday. But, you know, startup entrepreneurs shouldn't be on a golf course on Saturday. It's just that, and so yeah, the $120, that was cash into my business. Everything. I didn't go out to eat. I, you know, lunch was, and you know the story, lunch was two cans of Starkist tuna for a year. That was my lunch because it was cheap and it was fast and I could get back to work, back to selling. You know, start time was 4 a.m. at the kitchen table. And I wasn't in my sweats. I was in a suit and tie. You know, and that became my mindset. Someone, I was having coffee with a mentor of mine who described the, the likely outcome of my entrepreneurial pursuit. He said, the likely outcome is going to be, you're going to start this business, spin your wheels for two years, make a bunch of mistakes, burn through your cash reserve, and then struggle to re-enter the corporate America job market, the level you exited. That's the likely outcome of what you've just decided. And I said, well, oh, that's, I'm really glad I, we sat down for coffee. I feel sick now. <laughs> he said, but I'm guessing you don't want to be the likely outcome. You want to be one of the ones that make it. I said, I sure do. And this, this was a seminal moment. He said, then act like your life depends on this moment because it truly does. And that was when I got real serious about my choices, my cash flow, my savings, my spending. And it was a moment in time. I don't get up at 4 a.m. now and I, I don't put a suit on and, you know, when I'm working from home, I don't do those things anymore. But in that moment of time, I think it, it helped give me the energy I needed to navigate my uncertainty and to create some momentum and move me forwards. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Ryan Estes, writer, speaker, and consultant. When we come back, we're going to talk about the state of business today and how organizations are preparing themselves 
for a wave of technology transformation that is going to change the way we live and work. This is the best time in human history to be alive. People are living longer, healthier lives. Millions of people are escaping abject poverty every year around the world. And diseases that used to be a death sentence are on the ropes. But the world is changing quickly, too. Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, and a whole host of other technologies will change the way we live and work. Is your organization ready for it? 12 Geniuses isn't just a podcast. We are an organization that educates leaders about the changing world of work so you can harness new technologies, demographic changes, and new business models. To learn how 12 Geniuses can help prepare your leadership team to take advantages of the changes that will shape the next decade, check us out at 12geniuses.com. Our guest today is writer, speaker, and consultant Ryan Estes. We just heard about his entrepreneurial journey, and now we want to talk about the state of business today. Ryan, what are the companies, what's the profile of a company that typically hires you? I'd say they're predominantly large companies, but they vary greatly by category and industry. But I, I would say the lion's share of the, the speaking and training work we're doing is with leadership teams looking to navigate change and influence culture and, and sales, sales teams that are trying to drive growth in their business and compete for share of market. You talk about navigating change and shaping their cultures. What are some of the obstacles that they're seeing in terms of being able to create a, a culture that is relevant for the future? Well, so many organizations and, and leadership teams, I think, are resistant to change. Change is hard. It's hard for us as individuals, and it's, and it's also hard to rally a, a large group of people with different ideas, attitude, expectations, perspective to, you know, to evolve in a way that gives the business an opportunity to thrive into the future. So I, I would say that's top of mind in, in uh, most of the organizations I'm working with, you know, navigating change, evolution, transformation, disrupting themselves before the competition or marketplace does it for them. Is resistance to change one of the biggest leadership shortcomings that you're seeing at companies or what shortcomings do you typically see among leadership groups? Yeah, I would say re resistance to change is, is certainly a big one. I would say, um, you know, having f some failure tolerance and how we manage around that is, is another big one. I think, um, you know, a, a lot of people today in, in business, um, they feel overwhelmed. You know, um, a lot of the leaders that I've worked with, um, their schedules are meeting, 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 meeting. And then by the end of the day, they have 250 emails and 17 voicemails that they have to go home and get through at night. And, and so people are, are they're trying to survive and barely able to keep up with the work. And that doesn't create an environment that's right for innovation and transformation and experimentation and learning and growth. But all of those things are necessary for an, or an individual and an organization to, to move forward. So I think that's, you know, time is, is certainly a huge challenge in corporate America today. Having 250 emails at the end of the day that you need to answer, that's very reactive. But certainly there are organizations that you're working with where that's not the case, where they are giving people an opportunity to, sure. to think and to innovate and to create. What are those organizations doing differently or how are they creating that environment to enable their leadership and their employees to have that 
framework or environment. Yeah, I think um, organizations that are doing it differently recognize are recognizing that you know that time and time to learn is a strategic imperative. And so they're they're investing in it aggressively. I mean, I've done a lot of work with AT&T. I mean, they, they invest hundreds of millions of dollars into learning and development. They have their own corporate university. They're bringing experts in from the outside to challenge their business model and their way of thinking and their way of conducting business. Providing that kind of environment is going to keep leaders in the learning lane and ultimately is going to be a catalyst for innovation in the business. They're also tapping into their employee network. Over 230,000 employees, they, they have a process, a strategic process that encourages employees to submit ideas that the organization can ultimately leverage to start a new business, to you know evolve a business model, to do something a different way that improves process, function, strategy, and ultimately the bottom line and the health of the organization. But I think it ultimately comes down to investing in people and creating an environment that produces the kinds of outcomes we're talking about. Over the last 10 years, we've seen amazing change and we're going to see another wave of change coming. But over the last 10 years, social media has really shifted the game in terms of being able to communicate, access news, build audiences, have regular people build audiences. And then the the other one that's been very transformational is just mobility. And I was working with a company recently that had somebody who works, who's a digital nomad. So she actually travels with her husband to different countries around the world and works. And works fairly seamlessly. Right. You know, we didn't have digital nomads 10 years ago, but mobile technologies have enabled this. And I see a wave of technologies with artificial intelligence, robotics, wearables, the Internet of Things, 3D printing, virtual reality or augmented reality. These are going to change the way we live and work in a much more dramatic fashion than social media and mobile technologies. What are some of the organizations doing to prepare for these changes? Because I don't think that the average employee or the average citizen really understands how dramatically things are going to change. Yeah, I I would say that progressive organizations are certainly aware of and investing in an overall digitization strategy. And I think a lot of organizations are experimenting with evolving their business model to compete in this new hyper-connected artificial intelligence machine learning world. You know, consumer expectations are, are changing. The marketplace is becoming more competitive. Competition's coming from everywhere. I mean, while we're sitting here recording this podcast, I can say, hey, Alexa, buy paper towels. And and she will. And so it's, um, you know, I think there are great examples of smart organizations that are doing things differently or experimenting with their business in order to evolve, to remain relevant, or ultimately use this time of transformation as an opportunity. Because the reality is there's going to be big winners and there's going to be some organizations that stay stuck in the status quo and get disrupted. And that's the reality. You, you talked about shifting business models. Can you give an example of how an organization or an industry needs to think about that or, or is thinking about that? Sure. I'll give you a couple. So I, uh, I just did, gave a keynote presentation at the um, National Auto Dealers of America conference. And I, I drive a Cadillac Escalade. And I've had the car for it's a 2006. And obviously, 
you know, cars and technology have changed a lot. But what's also changing is the consumer expectations around that. It's inconceivable to me that I would drive around Minneapolis, Minnesota on a Saturday afternoon, go into five or six different dealerships, test drive a car around the block, and then negotiate on price with the sales professional. I'm just, I'm just not going to do that next time I purchase a car. And Cadillac's an example. They actually are experimenting with a platform or subscription-based model where for a flat fee, $1,800 a month, I, I can drive any car in their fleet. I can change cars up to 18 times in a 12-month period. I don't have to deal with any insurance. I don't have to deal with any maintenance. All I have to do is put gas in the car and give the keys back to my concierge when he comes and brings me out a new one. That's new and it saves me time, headache, hassle, provides convenience, flexibility, more choices, and I think an overall better experience. That's an example because I, I think the auto dealers realize that business is ripe for disruption in the sharing connected economy that we live in today. And, and Cadillac is testing this? They are testing it in two, in two yeah, they're testing it in a couple of markets. That's and, right. and you said you had another, another example? Yeah, I mean, I, another example is um, I, I'm working with um, Accor Hotels and they've launched an initiative called One Fine Stay where they're basically competing head to head with Airbnb. Now, is that gonna cannibalize their traditional hotel business? No, I don't think so. They have 4,000 properties. They have thousands of people moving in and out of these properties every day. They have a built-in customer base that has a relationship with that brand. It, it would only be logical that they could extend that brand into the sharing economy and this other market. And why not have an entry? into that category and compete for that other share. And so it's it's just a way of thinking differently and evolving your business model. And that, you know, there are count, countless other examples of companies that are extending their brand, looking at a differentiated way of doing business. Yeah, I like that model because I, I, I travel a lot like you do, and there are times when I wanna stay in an apartment or an Airbnb type property, and there are other times when it's better to stay in a hotel. So that, that's a smart business model. By 2020, it's estimated that more than half the people, half the leaders in the US are going to be millennials. And we're seeing about 10,000 or 11,000 baby boomers retiring every day, which is amazing to me. So we're, we're really going to sh see a shift in experience related to leadership. What are one or two competencies that are most critical for these younger first-time leaders to have? Communication skills, I think, is a, is a big one. You know, we talked about the advent of technology and, and it's creating all kinds of opportunities, but it's also creating some challenges. And I think, you know, our ability to communicate, build one-on-one -on -one kind of connected relationships, um, I think that's instrumental to leadership. It's, it's a critical competency. I also think long-range thinking, you know, having a vision of where the organization is going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now, and, and instilling confidence in that vision and having a clear strategy to get there. I think those are two mission critical skills of leaders. So I, you know, communication, confidence in the future and vision, I think are, are pretty big ones for this next generation of leaders to, to have. How about, this might be related to, to communication but <clears throat> prioritization. I mean, you talked about 250 emails a day, you know, you can't give equal credence to each one of those. No, I, I think prioritization is is absolutely critical and just you know agile and flexible decision making right um you know the pace of business is so much faster now and it requires people to course correct reinvent 
and and invent. I, I think that's another critical component of leadership too. I'll call it just invention. You know, the way we've done business the last 10 years probably isn't going to get us to where we need to go 10 years into the future. You know, 20 years ago when, when I started in business, it was really follow the playbook. You know, this is the prescription. And if we follow this formula, you know, we're going to be able to reliably predict profitable growth by the end of the year until the playbook didn't work anymore. And we're simultaneously having to rewrite the playbook and execute at the same time. So a leader has to have a foot in two worlds. You have to have the drive to execute and perform given today's marketplace reality while also simultaneously maintaining the discipline to continue to reinvent yourself and the business and conduct experiments and iterate going forward. I want to ask you about sales. This is an area of competence for you. You've been a sales leader for many years and spoken at many sales conferences. What are some of the biggest ways in which sales has changed over the last decade? And, you know, before you answer that question, I I think I've seen you cite a statistic where a prospect has 60% or 65% of the information that they need to make a decision before they ever talk to a sales rep. Is that that is, that that is accurate? So customers customers are more informed, more sophisticated, yeah, and have actually are you know over half of the way down to a decision before they ever contact an organization or a sales professional. So that's just a, that's a markedly different customer. And they have to be approached differently than they were a decade ago. I mean, that that's it. Simultaneously, I think it's easy for customers today to get overwhelmed with information, suffer from the paradox of choice. Corporate buying decisions are taking longer. More people are touching and influencing those decisions. And so it just, it takes a more sophisticated approach to deal with a more sophisticated buying audience. So when you say sophistication, what, what do you mean by that? Give so, some, give, sure. Give some. Salespeople, they have to be more prepared. They have to do more research. They have to, they have to understand at a deep level, not only their own product and solution suite, not only the competitive category, but the customer and why the customer needs the solution and, and be able to interpret that in a way that resonates with the customer. So it, you know, it's um, sales has evolved to a place where you have to be an expert and you have to know more and be better prepared and more disciplined. And it's, and it's really, is, it's less about the relationship and more about the impact you can have on what somebody else cares about. You might've answered this by that answer, but how do you see sales evolving over the next, let's say decade? Yeah, I, I think, um, and there's a statistic too that there's going to be a million fewer B2B sales roles in North America by 2020 because corporate buyers are so frustrated with the experience of dealing with sales professionals that once they have the information, they would rather just bypass the sales experience altogether and buy directly. You know, So I think the profession is going to continue to require the evolution of skills, expertise, information, and insight. And so what I always tell salespeople today is you've got to get closer to the customer. I think the way we've led and managed sales organizations is fundamentally changing. You know, all this, these ideas about measuring activity and outbound calls, I think is a is going to continue to evolve and really move to a place where, you know, today's salespeople, the best salespeople, the DNA of a top producer really understands their customer and almost works more as a consulting extension of the customer's business. So I'm going to put you on the spot and cite a statistic that I read from you, which is, I won't have the exact figure, but about half of all salespeople 
given the opportunity to work in a different job and make the same amount of money, would choose to leave sales. If you had a client, if that was the profile of, of a sales organization for one of your clients, how would you, what advice would you give to that CEO or that general sales manager? Yeah, I, I, I would say that you've got a lot of people inside your sales organization that probably would rather be doing something else. And the likelihood is they're underperforming. And I think, uh, you know, the CEO, sales manager, you know, you have a responsibility to put the best team on the field to compete for share of market every day. You know, that's part of what good sales leadership is is all about. And so there might be some some performance management and some real courageous conversations required in the context of that sales organization to make sure that the individuals in it are performing at maximum capability. We talked earlier about your entrepreneurial journey. Let's wrap it up by talking about what you're doing to ensure your business stays relevant and avoids disruption. Yeah, uh, we continue to evolve our, our service model and offering. So I would say it's a, it's a combination of conducting experiments. We're always conducting three or four little experiments in the business so we can get feedback and iterate and evolve our model. We're trying to get closer to our customers um, by doing things um, you know, around research and survey. And I think we'll add on additional services. And personally, I continue to invest in my own learning, you know, self-study, reading, attending seminars, listening to podcasts. You know, I'm, I'm a student and I think the best teachers have to stay lifelong learners and, and be students. And so that's a big part of the investment I make in both myself and my business to ensure that, you know, we're not only relevant in the 2020 world, but we can continue to grow and thrive. You've talked about conducting your own experiments. Can you list a couple of them that you have run recently or are planning to run? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you three examples. So uh, one example is um, we made a, a pretty significant um, investment in, in marketing services this year. We've got an agency on retainer that's helping us create more content, more robust content. We just launched our, our public Facebook page. We're doing a lot more work with video. And, and so, you know, that was an investment in order to kind of extend our reach and expand our content so the message can get to more people. That That's one that, that we're evaluating. Another is the research. I mean, we just kind of did a partnership and made an investment in research and survey work that when we're doing an engagement with a client, we'll have the opportunity to deploy surveys and conduct quantitative research before an event so we can customize the curriculum and make sure the content is, is relevant in a way that I think is markedly unique, certainly for keynote speaking, but also for training. That's the second one. And then uh, we've also, uh, I also do to am delivering a program, one or a two day program in partnership with another speaker, Seth Madison, about leadership, leading breakthrough performance. Um, we rolled that out um, about 18 months ago. I've delivered a handful of seminars and that's working well too. Um, and um, that's that's been an exciting new opportunity and I'll continue to experiment. So those are those are three that we've rolled out in the last 12 months and, and we'll continue to evaluate those and add to it as it makes sense for our business. Ryan, listeners of the podcast can find you where online? At ryanestes.com and pretty active uh, on the blog and uh, also on Instagram too. Fantastic. Our guest today has been Ryan Estes. He's a keynote speaker, writer, and consultant. Ryan, thanks for being a genius today. Thank you, Don. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. 
Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, if you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world, influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com. <laughs>